0: Well, if you want to begin this week preparing for our next study, I would encourage you to start reading through the book of First Thessalonians. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that last year we finished up a lengthy uh, study through the book of Hebrews, and so our next dive into our study of God's word is going to fix us for the rest of the year at least. Uh, on the book of First Thessalonians, and so you could begin to read that in the summer months. We're going to turn our attention to Exodus, so those kind of maps out our, our preaching for the next year, more than likely, Lord willing, uh, that's the plan. Who knows? God could change all that, right? Uh, but uh, that's that's the plan. So you could begin to to read First Thessalonians, and I think as you do, I hope that you begin to see. Um, the, the wonderful affection from a leader for the flock and the flock for the leader and how that works out in the life of the church and in sanctification. It is gonna be a marvelous tour and study through that book. But this morning, we're gonna conclude our month-long look into how we can learn from Jesus about prayer. And I anticipate as we bring this study to a conclusion that our short consideration of these truths are just really a launching pad for all of us into growing in intentional fellowship with the Lord in prayer. And I hope that you have tasted of that and begun to apply that in your own dedicated personal times of prayer, taking these truths that we've been studying together and actually working them out in the way that you fellowship with the Lord in prayer. What we've been learning, and I hope you have seen that, is that prayer prayer is not some magical tool that unlocks our own personal desires. Prayer actually is a habitual discipline of submitting ourselves in intentional, specific dependence upon God in every facet of personal and even in congregational life. Prayer is a personal fellowship with God that realigns our heart's affections for what reflects the promise And the priorities found in being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus teaches within this sermon about prayer, we've noted to be categories. Specific categories in how to pray in a kingdom-oriented way. And I hope that you have seen that and you've begun to flesh that out in the way that you pray. You're seeing the specific biblical categories of how you pray as a citizen of the kingdom of God. How do you align yourself with the priorities of God's kingdom? How do we as a congregation together align ourselves in our praying with the priorities of God in his kingdom in prayer? And that's what we found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, the priorities of God that are fleshed out in prayer by his people, the citizens of his kingdom. And within this model, we've looked at six commands, or by the end of today, we'll have seen all six commands. And we've seen they can easily be, be arranged into two groups. There are God-focused elements in verses 9 to 10, all based around the pronoun you're focused on God, and personal elements in verses 11 through 13. And you see that based around that little pronoun us and our so that's how we've arranged our discussion in how to approach even a personal dedicated intentional daily time of prayer for you first of all we focus upon god you remember that we focus upon god we pray for the sanctifying of god's name we pray for the coming of god's kingdom we pray for the accomplishing of god's will I can think of no better way to begin a dedicated time of prayer than focusing your heart's affections on God and pleading with God to do what would most honor His name and His will and bring in His kingdom. The second half of the model prayer shows us how we pray personally. That's what we've been looking at recently. Pray, how to pray personally. And there are three ways we pray dependently upon God regarding the personal issues of life. Last week, we looked at two of them. We pray for the providing of our needs. We learn to live gratefully and dependently on God for absolutely everything. We saw that in verse verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And we pray, secondly then, for the forgiving of our sins. We looked at that in detail last week. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts, what we are obligated to God over because of sin, as we also have forgiven those who've sinned against us. They've become obligated to us in sin. We forgive, and we look to God for forgiveness. This morning, we wanna look at the third way we pray personally. The third way we pray, dependently upon God about the personal issues of life. This third way is, I've entitled it, pray for the delivering of our souls. Pray for the delivering of our souls. You see it in verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've read your Bible seriously, and you've thought about theology in a very personal way, This statement is a very curious statement. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You might remember some place like James chapter one and verse two that reminds us that we're to actually consider it all joy when we fall into various what? Trials. Now think about that for a moment. The word for temptation in Matthew 6, do not lead us into temptation, is the same word in James 1, 2 that calls us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Temptation and trial is the same term in the Greek New Testament, Parasmos. It can be translated both ways and the context is what determines which translation is best. Even more, if you were to run over to James 1 for a moment, and you looked at verse 13, you would be reminded of what we all know is that God does not tempt anyone, right? God does not tempt anyone. But that word tempt is the same word that you will find in Matthew chapter six when you're praying that God would not lead us into temptation. It's the same word. And James reminds us, well, God is not going to tempt you. But then again, again, if you're paying attention to your Bible, you could find some place like Matthew chapter four, verse one, when Jesus is being led, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. What gives? What's happening? Well, the difference between temptation and And trial is in terms of intention. The difference between temptation or a trial is in regard to intention. And here's what I mean by that. In the case of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit is driving Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, is God's intention, is the Holy Spirit's intention for him to fail, for him to sin? For him to lose his soul? No. The intention of God, the Holy Spirit, is to drive him into the wilderness to proclaim him to be the unique son of God, to show you and display to you the power of God over sin and that this indeed is the true king. That was the Holy Spirit's intention. But what was the devil's intention for Jesus in the wilderness? Are you really the son of God? His intention was to destroy the son of God, discredit the son of God, call him into sin and make him fall and lose his soul as it were. That was the devil's intention. Even back in James in chapter one, it's a whole chapter, the whole thing I think you should read in light of verse two about counting it all joy when you fall into trials, even verse 17 of James 1. Just listen to it. You know this verse, but my guess is when you've read it, you've really not thought about it in terms of trial. So James 1, 2, I'm to consider it all joy when I fall into various kinds of trials, right? But God doesn't tempt. No, his intention is never to drive you into evil. But verse 17 says, every good thing given And every perfect gift is from above. What is the perfect gift? What do trials do? James 1, 2, 3, and 4. Trials perfect the soul. God allows seasons, he ordains seasons of trial to perfect the soul. Every good thing given. Every perfect gift that is perfecting kind of gift that is coming from God is coming down from the father of lights, not the father of evil and darkness, but the father who intends good and holiness and righteousness and purity, even in your trial. And with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. God's not changing. God is not being blown around by the winds. His intention for you, even in the midst of trial, is steadiness and perfection. Completion. Even in trial. The devil intends in his plotting against the soul to drive you into evil. And yet the father brings and ordains times of trial so that it might demonstrate your faith. Strengthen your faith, perfect your faith, complete you. So what are we praying? We're praying here for God to not lead us into a season of trial in which our faith would actually fail. That's what we're praying. God, do not lead us into this season of trial in which our faith might fail. Now, I know already some of you are saying, wait a minute, why would you pray that? Pastor Brett, do you not believe in the security of our salvation? Well, of course I do, I do. And I can hear the objection that some would say, well, God has already promised our eternal protection through the security of our salvation. Did you not hear uh, Mark Kristiniak praying with us through Romans chapter eight? and that wonderful securing section of scripture that says there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Hasn't God already promised our eternal protection? So why would we then pray, God don't lead us into a time of trial that would cause us to fail? Well, God has made our salvation secure, certainly. But I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it carefully. How does God apply the security He promises day by day, situation by situation? How does He actually apply eternal security to your soul in the midst of life? The promises of God are not empty of practical application, friends. Yes, he's promised your security and he guarantees it and he provides for it step by step, day by day, through specific means. In fact, one of the ways God keeps his promise of eternal security of our soul is through our prayerful dependence upon him, situation by situation, moment by moment, day after day. You're praying for God to keep your soul from the evil that seeks to destroy your soul. And furthermore, it's not merely a prayer that God uses to protect us. In concert with prayer, he uses a life of practical obedience and faith that is trust and commitment as a means to keep his promise to protect us. So what we're doing here is we're pleading here with God not to allow us to enter a time of trial that would undo our trust in him. But deliver us from such evil intentions. And we pray this and we're actually and actively seeking in the word. How should we respond to these specific times of trial. And praying according to the word that God would enliven the promises. Enliven the word so that he keeps us. And God will keep us. And he does that practically. Practically. And specifically, when you became a Christian, he didn't just put this magic wand over you and say, eternally secure, you don't have to do anything. Don't act, just, it's done. He did give you a secure salvation and he said, now I want you to experience it and I want you to apply it and I want you to trust the promises and see them and pray dependently on these situation by situation. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like? For, for for you, there are many different trials, are they not? Many in your life. So you, I know there's some would say, well, I, I guess I, I don't quite understand this. Why Why do you pray this way? Why live this way if God has already guaranteed future glory? Do you see how this is just another expression of constant dependence on God? Notice, we are dependent on God for every physical necessity. Give us this day our daily bread, right? We're dependent on God for every relational need. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we're dependent on God for every spiritual need. Do not lead us into temptation. And at the same time, do you not know this to be true? God has already guaranteed that he would meet every need. He's already promised it. He's already promised and granted us complete forgiveness in Jesus and he's already guaranteed our eternal security, and yet in this prayer, we're to pray dependently for every one of them. Everything he's guaranteed, we're still called to pray dependently upon him. He wants us to live in prayerful dependence. That's what prayer is. You do understand that, don't you? Prayer is an expression of dependence on God. So then think of it this way. Prayerlessness is an expression of self-dependence, isn't it? And if you don't pray and you don't pray regularly and you don't pray in a dependent way, what are you saying? What are you saying about yourself? Oh, God's already got this. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to do anything. I, I just, I'm in God. Whatever happens, happens. He never tells you to live that way, Ever ah do not use the sovereignty of God to excuse slothfulness sinfulness do not use the sovereign hand of God and say well does not matter what I do God God will just do his will anyway that's not how people embrace the gospel is he sovereign in salvation I believe that he is And he's so sovereign that he uses specific means like your prayers and your witness to bring people into the kingdom. Is he sovereign over illness and death? I believe that he is. But my friends, he does use means. Those of you who've had successful surgery realize that. Those of you who have gone to a doctor or perhaps you are a doctor, you realize you're a tool in the hand of God and he uses means. And you're thankful for them. And if you do what the doctor says, when the doctor says to do it, you typically find help in it, stereotypically, but he's still sovereign. Just because he's sovereign doesn't mean that you don't act. Even in this area of praying for the deliverance of your soul, pray dependently as if your soul's security depends on it. I want you to think about that practically. I want you to think about that intentionally. How well do you know your own heart? How well do you know your soul? How detailed are you in the study of the temptations of your soul? How well do you know the kinds of temptations, the people associated with them, the issues that would come across that would have the tendency to pull you away from God ever so slightly but constantly, how well do you know them? And how specific are your prayers about those things? Or do you just live reactionary in regard to those issues? Romans 13:14 is a, a verse my mind flees to many times, it tells us to put on the Lord Jesus. And as we put on the Lord Jesus, we are to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I just wonder, do you know the appetite of your flesh? How well do you know what it craves, what it wants, what it desires? And I mean that part of your unredeemed humanity that still craves what is sinful. And listen, that's gonna look like something specific for you. Your fears, the issues that tend to plague you, that cause you to pull away from God's people, perhaps from God and be less dependent on him in prayer. The temptations of your soul that seem to drag you into sin. Do you know them well? Do you know the appetite? And what are you doing to starve that flesh, not feed it? I suggest to you that this portion of prayer is connected to that very idea. You're praying, God, do not let me enter into a season of trial that would pull me away from you. What is that? What is that for you? What are the potential temptations? Let's even ask that a different way. What, what does that look like for us? As a church, what are the particular temptations of our own congregation to pull us away from God? Oh, I can easily think of some that readily come to mind. Well, we are a well-taught congregation. We love the Word of God and we love rich theology and we love to dig deep into the things of the scripture. So perhaps pride perhaps coldness, perhaps self-sufficiency in what we already know, perhaps comparison of us and another congregation would simply lead us to be less dependent as a church on his grace and his mercy. How often do you pray about that for all of us? Lead us not into temptation not just me how often are you praying that we would not walk down the road of a season of trial that actually causes the soul of our congregation to walk away from absolute dependence on God what recent sermons or passages of scripture from your own bible reading are you using to pray for our church as a whole Are there people within the congregation, specific people in our church facing temptations that could pull them away from the faith? Are there people that we have not seen who have committed themselves in relationship and commitment to this congregation that we we simply haven't seen them in a while? And do you know what's going on in their life? You know what's typical? We'll say, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. And we go and ask somebody, where are they? And I always wonder, well, why don't you know? They're a part of you. They're a part of you as we are the body. So yes, it's, it's good. You might ask, have you seen so? No, I haven't. So maybe that's God's providential sign for you to call. Or the more secretive way, email. Right, that's the safer way to do it. Email or text if you're under 40. Right? You don't use email if you're young. Just gets in your way. I refuse to TikTok though. (laughs) Are you actively praying? Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for people who you know in our church who are struggling with particular sins. You even know people well enough in the church to know what their particular sins are so that you know how to pray this prayer for them? Are you in relationship with people to know exactly how to do? Do you see how this fits with congregational life? Is this how you walk through the membership directory at times? Page by page, looking at the faces and praying that God would protect them? We've had people fall away here. We've had people leave the faith. And every time that happens and when that happens, something in me says, how active was I praying for them? How active was I in prayer for them? What about the persecuted church beyond us? In other parts of the world where Christians are suffering just for doing what we have taken for granted today and that's gathering together, singing, praying without Hardly any fear whatsoever. And yet there are people, there are people who will lose their lives today because of their identification with Jesus Christ. Are we praying? Do we even know where to pray? Do we know how to pray for them? Are you praying this for them? What about other congregations in our area, in our country, other parts of the world? How do we pray for them this way? In our Sunday evening gatherings when we pray, oftentimes as we did last Lord's Day, we gathered together and you received a little handout and in the beginning of that handout was particular requests from another pastor of another church in this area. Here's what's going on in our congregation. Would you please pray for us? And we would break into smaller groups and begin to pray for those pastors and those churches and those congregations. Shouldn't we do that? God, keep them. Protect them. Do not let evil overwhelm them. I mean, the list is inevitable. And if you're not praying that way for yourself, you're not praying this way, deliver us from evil. I wonder how serious you actually take the deceptive abilities of sin. You really think that sin is deceptive? I, I, my mind runs back to Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, meaning your congregation, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. That means encourage each other in the congregation day after day, as long as it's still called today. What does that mean? Until the Lord comes back. You encourage each other so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And certainly, my friends, certainly, one application of that encouragement is to pray for each other. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this portion of prayer takes the fight with sin dead serious, whether in our own heart or the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And I don't know about you, but I I feel as if this can be so overwhelming at times. So overwhelming. How do you fight with an enemy sometimes you can't even see? And you don't know what it's saying. And you don't know all the particular temptations of people's hearts. And it's spiritual. And you can't even see spiritual principalities and powers. And don't buy it when people say that they've seen them and this and that. No, you can't see them. But you know they're there. The demonic world is real. Sin is a real spiritual issue. And it feels as if at times it's so powerful. It's so ever present. It's like it never stops. We go to bed and sin never sleeps. Temptation happens in the middle of the night. Well, maybe that's why you read that last phrase. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's not up to me. And it's not in me, and it's not founded in me. It is in God, right? This is another way we express our dependence on God. We pray for the delivering of our souls Independence dependence on God because the kingdom is his. The power is his. Show your power in the delivering of souls. Show the sheer strength of salvation as you deliver people from the poisonous deception of sin and temptation. Prove yourself the father of lights. I think he loves to do that. I think he loves to spoil sin and its Intentions. And he loves to show his power through people overcome, overcoming even the smallest of habits or the greatest of temptations. Yes, I know there's some debate in the text of whether that last phrase is original or not. It certainly does reflect biblical theme and truth and would be an appropriate way to remind you when you're praying for deliverance or even any of the requests in this prayer, all of this belongs to God. It's about his kingdom, his power, and his glory, is it not? So if you finished your prayer with a confidence, and you finished a time of intentional prayer with an absolute confidence that the whole universe rests in the hand of God and he's bringing his kingdom in salvation, through his Messiah and we've been praying intentionally in every conceivable way about that and we finish trusting in the power of God, I think you've had a marvelously successful time of prayer because God wants to leave you that dependent on him. Well, that's all I have to say about prayer. It's only 11.23. So let's talk about how to apply it. I'm not done yet. Let's talk about how to apply it. Let me give you uh, some suggestions. All right, we, we've learned what it means, how to focus on God and what that looks like. We've looked at how to pray personally in three different ways of how we pray personally, all in dependence on God. On God. But what are you going to do with that personally? What are you going to do with that practically? So I want to make some suggestions. Now, when I do this, I, I almost loathe to do it. Because I I think every time I make a specific explanation or suggestion of how to do this in a practical way, someone's going to say, well, that's the way I've got to do it. And this is not the way you have to do it. You can find many ways of how to do it. The problem that I find with many Christians is they are not doing it. They don't have a way. They don't know what to do. Prayer is haphazard, it becomes inconsistent, it falls off. Now we find ourselves not praying because we've never thought about how do how am I going to do this specifically? So I'm gonna give you some specific illustrations, some from my own life. And by the way, here's what happens in my own life. I'll give you an illustration of how I'm using it and probably a month from now, I'll change it. All right, this is not, nothing. none of this is set in stone. I'm just trying in my own heart to be faithful with what's in the passage here. So how do I use it in a very personal way? So I don't want you to fall in the trap to think, okay, well, I've got to do it this way and I've got to do it and I'll just tell people, well I do it the way the pastor does it? No, don't do that stuff. That's silly. But I, I do want you to think through this. How do, how do we use it? How do we connect it with other spiritual disciplines? How long should we we pray? What should this look like? Where am I going to do it? Let's talk about a number of these things. So let me start with a few general suggestions and just a few themes I want to think through in regard to prayer? Just a few general suggestions. Now often we don't spend much time in concentrated prayer because I'm I'm afraid we think prayer does not always yield the kind of enjoyment we think we should be getting from it. So we stop praying. Or maybe we're ill-prepared and we tend to waste time trying to find the right place and get rid of all these distractions we've not made practical readiness to pray and some people feel very discouraged because they want to pray a little more and they want to pray longer but they just find themselves praying short prayers short times of prayer and they think well, this is not very this can't be worth it this is not worthwhile so let me address a couple of those general issues first I want to talk about the issue of discipline and delight you know this to be true but I just want to remind ourselves, prayer actually is a rigorous responsibility as well as an enjoyable privilege. I know when we talk about prayer and fellowship with God and relationship, we, we tend to think, it ought to just be free flowing. It shouldn't feel rigorous. We shouldn't have to use the word discipline in regard to fellowship with God. And I, I often wonder, why not? Why not? Oftentimes, we've not reached a place of delight because we've not pursued prayer with much discipline. I mean, how many of you have started watching the Olympics? Probably, you know, all of you if you're human. You haven't? Oh, I hope you do. I mean, I'm just always amazed. Aren't you? Absolute fluidity in movement. It seems as if what they do with their bodies requires almost no effort. It's so seemingly effortless. Such ease, such dexterity. And it seems like these feats that they're accomplishing flow almost without any kind of of discipline whatsoever. But if you get into the lives of every single one of those athletes, they will tell you of all of the drudgery it takes to become so fluid. They put in hours of repetitious effort they challenge themselves behind the scenes with days filled with less than exhilarating experiences so they can reach the height and the pinnacle and they enjoy the fluidity of what they're doing. Accomplished musicians are the same. I was a, a music major for some time in college. I was a pretty good music, uh, trumpet player in high school. I don't mind saying. I was pretty proud. I was first chair most of the year, soloist out on the marching field. I had those glory days. Then I went to college, and I was the worst of the bunch. I mean, I'm like in—I'm not even in the top band. I'm at the the lower end of the lower band in college. Music was really hard. It was laborious, and I remember my trumpet teacher telling me. He said, "If you really—if you just want to be mediocre, which is not even where you are right now," he told me that. He said, uh, you've got to practice at least two hours a day on your primary instrument. Then you've got to spend another hour a day minimum playing piano, which I didn't know how to play. I'm um, two hours a day, really? And that was just to get to be mediocre, of which I was not. And I knew some of my friends, I knew some of the guys in the top echelons of the of the organization and and I knew how much they were practicing. It wasn't two hours a day, far more. And when they would play, I remember one of my my really close friends, he would pick up a trumpet and he would start to play and his he would just float. It just seemed like there was no effort. But I know that it was three, four, five hours a day of practicing these mundane scales up and down and all kinds of things before he ever got to the music and it's repetitious and it's over and over but then he could just pick it up and play anything. It was incredible. And here we are. I shouldn't have to work at it to pray fluidly, to enjoy, really. Discipline is intertwined with delight in what we do well. If you want to pray with deep joy, you're likely going to need to discipline yourself to learn to pray. And the reality is relationships with people are that way. If you have really close relationships, deep relationships in which you share the closeness of life, they don't just happen. The more time, the more focus that you put into a relationship, the more you tend to get out of it. You have any of those relationships where you tend to just know what the other person is thinking? Well, that didn't just happen one day, you ran into them and said, oh, I know what you're thinking, we should get married. You didn't do that. You know each other, you spend enough time around, you know how they think, you know the the mannerisms of their life and you can anticipate it. It comes from disciplined behavior. I think you need to dispel the notion in your mind that you must experience fresh, deeper insights every single time you pick up your Bible or you begin to pray. You say, I shouldn't think that? Correct. Day in and day out, you might be reminding yourself of things you already know. And God may use that in His providence later on down the line in ways that you did not expect. And you'll see it come to place. But if you think, if I don't, if I don't get spiritual goose pimples every time I do prayer, I, I'm not sure if it's worthwhile. Friends, nothing else in life works that way. Why are you making prayer that way? You pray and you fellowship with the Lord. Yes, it will grow sweeter and sweeter and sweeter, but not absent of discipline. Cast away the thought that prayer is meaningless if it does not feel effortless. Remove that mindset that prayer should come easily without any kind of discipline and focus. Listen, I I agree, prayer is not merely a duty, but it is not less than a duty. It should be a free-flowing fellowship with God as our Father. And it must be more than just free-flowing. It must be focused. Life is not going to just make it easy for you to pray effortlessly. So you have to pray through the hard times. That has to be a part of your heart. Let me talk about when and where you should pray. And I'm talking about having a dedicated specific time of prayer. When and where should you do that? Well, listen, let's just embrace reality here. Let's, Let's make this easy for everybody, okay? It's just us in the room. Different seasons of life will determine when and where and how much time you spend in prayer. You do know that, don't you? It's okay. It's okay. Mothers with newborns, Do not feel the burden to pray for two or three hours a day. You say, two or three hours? I'd just like to get a half hour. Right. It's a season of life where you are. I know that some often find frustration the lack of available time to give to concentrated prayer. Prayer can be significant even if you can't have just the routine daily scheduled time. Perhaps you're going to have to plan for 10 or 15 minutes after your child goes down for a nap or late at night or even while they're just sleeping restlessly in your arms. It's okay. Do you not think the Lord knows and understands and sees you struggling still to connect with him in prayer? Maybe you remember the, the illustration that the Wesley brothers gave of their mother. There was like 17 children or something like that. And mother would sit in her rocking chair and she'd put her apron over her head and that was the sign. Don't bother mom. (laughs) She's in prayer. So who knows what they did while she's under her apron, but (laughs) and anecdotally you hear they can hear her praying for them. Maybe you need to find a chair in the middle of the room and put your apron over your head ladies and give it a shot. You say, well, they're going to burn the house down. Well, The Lord will provide, right? (laughs) Perhaps. Employment demands, I get it. Teenage activities, I understand it. A schedule filled with all kinds of commitments, that's always gonna challenge you, always. But as is everything that is worthwhile in life, you're gonna have to prioritize what you value. Have you ever noticed we find the time to do what we want to do? We find the time, we make the time, we make the time to do what we want to do. And if you really want to be a person of prayer, you're going to have to think very specifically about how that's going to happen in your life. So try to find a place that you can come to regularly, that maybe is away from all the family traffic patterns, if you can do that. Maybe it's a chair in the corner of your bedroom, a dinner table, a place in your patio, a spot on the floor. It doesn't really matter. Find a place where you might be able to get your Bible and maybe a piece of paper or a notebook or something where you can record thoughts on prayer and scriptures that are driving you in prayer. And think about when does this need to happen. If you have to make that decision day to day to day, that's fine, but choose a specific time. We normally don't do things because we don't plan to do it. When is the best time for you? Given the circumstances and season of your life, when are you going to pray? Is it late at night after everyone's gone to bed? And you're the night owl and you can do that? Is it early in the morning before everyone begins to stir? Is it during your 15-minute break at lunch? A time of work? I, I knew employees that I worked with when I was in seminary working in another job and And every, they would take their lunch break and they'd go sit in their car because it was the only quiet place there was. And they would take their 15 minute break or their 30 minute lunch in, in their car praying. It was a great illustration to me. Consider perhaps even discuss it with your, your spouse. How you can help each other have dedicated times of prayer. Well, how long should you pray? It's another question. How long should you pray? How long is enough? Well, I'm not convinced that there's any kind of universal answer to this. I, I can read the Bible. I see on one occasion Jesus prayed all night long. All night long. He didn't do that every day. But in Luke 6 12, he did it one day. It seems to be his regular habit to rise before the sun. He spent time in prayer, Mark 1.35, and it even suggests in Mark 1.36 that they were searching for him, meaning they couldn't find him. He really got away from everybody. And if they're searching for him, that must have taken some time. So if he did it before the sun had arisen, I don't know how many hours perhaps that was that he was in prayer. So he dedicated, this is the son of God, dedicating a significant portion of his life to prayer. When Jesus was in the most intense hour of need, he asked his disciples if they were unable to stay up in prayer with him for even how long? Are you not able to pray with me even one hour? As if... It's minimal? Have you ever thought about that? What? One hour? How long is long enough? Well, I suppose the answer would be pray until you have sufficiently prayed. Pray. We all likely have responsibilities at home, school, jobs, all kinds of specific time demands. And have you noticed that all of those time demands require you to be disciplined? When the boss says, I need you at this meeting at this time, if you just said, you know, if I, if I get around to that, you know, if the, if the kids cooperate, that's what I'll do. You know, if my wife is fine, then I'll, I'll make it by that time. And they're like, yeah, sure. I don't mind. No, you, you, you plan. Some of you, you're so rigorous in the schedule. You know when you're going to go to bed. You know when you're going to get up and you mitigate against those, everything that's coming against that so you can be disciplined. Could we even take an ounce of that and apply it to our approach to prayer and be disciplined in that and think about it? I guess if we thought that prayer was essential and dependence was essential, just like we think all these other things in life are essential, then we would dedicate the time to it. Now, just a, a word of caution here. It's kind of like exercise. If you, if you started in January and say, I've really never exercised before, but I'm gonna start with a two-hour workout. I've got a trainer and I've told the trainer, I, just work every muscle, go ahead. I did that one year. I remember in seminary, I, I joined the gym and I got the trainer. And, and he, I think he thought I was a little toy to just play around with. And he worked out every single muscle in my, things I probably hadn't even touched in maybe my entire lifetime. I could not move for a week. I I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night. Everything just hurt so bad in my entire, so, and and it took about an hour, a little over an hour for him to do that kind of damage to me (laughs) that lasted so long. So, so you, you, you don't approach exercise that way. Don't approach prayer that way. If you, if you say, listen, I I can't even pray five minutes. I'm not even consistent with five minutes a day. Then do not set a goal for yourself to say, I'm going to do an hour. You know what we call that? Dumb. (laughs) It's dumb. All you're going to do is frustrate yourself. Why don't you set a really lofty goal of 10 minutes? 10 minutes. But you're going to dedicate that time in a structured way. And I think if you started applying what we've been talking about here, you're going to find 10 minutes just evaporate so quickly. And you're going to sense and desire for more prayer and more significant times. Build it into your life. Build the habit. But it is worth considering Jesus' words. So not even an hour? Could you build toward that? Another general suggestion, I suggest you use the outline, the outline that we just gave you. Focus upon God and pray for all the things, the hallowing of his name, the doing, accomplishing of his will, the coming of his kingdom, pray personally. All those things that we gave you, use that outline. And in a moment, I'm gonna give you a few ways in which I use that outline and just kind of talk through it with you, but... There are dangers, I get it. Someone's going to say, I'm not going to use an outline. It's going to feel like prayer is just checking off boxes. Well, it can become rote and it can feel like you're just checking off boxes if that's how you approach it. That's a danger only to the degree that you allow it to be. If you allow it to be checking off the boxes and going through the motions and that's it, then that's what it will be. But I think the more intentional you are to approach your time in prayer as a means of fellowship with God, the less you're going to experience the frustrations of that. The deepest relationships we have come because we take time to cultivate them. Few lasting, trusting, deeply close relationships are made through inconsistent, purely spontaneous, unfocused, unplanned, scattered time spent together, right? So the outline is intended just to be a beginning structure. It follows the flow of Jesus model prayer that's given to us here. It's all the categories that we see here. It attaches possible details to every phrase. So it's not just repeating the words, it's thinking through the category and what does this look like? And the model should not be a straitjacket for prayer restricting you from adding anything to it or praying in a different direction at different times. It's just a, a way to help you be focused and move forward in prayer. So I, I suggest just use it to begin structuring your prayer life. Choose to add other kinds of requests at different places. You may spend more time on the first half of the outline at one time than the than the other. You may find yourself praying on and through a portion of, of the, the outline at one day and you didn't get to the other part, you do it the next day. But what are you doing? You're praying. You're praying. One other general suggestion I want to throw at you, and that is connect your praying to your Bible intake. Connect your prayer to your Bible intake. One of the habits I've enjoyed for many years is just reading through the Bible in a year. And, and that can get to feel like checking off the boxes too, right? If you approach it that way. But I find the discipline helpful. Now, some of you say, I don't don't do that. I go through the Bible very slowly, through a book of Bible, fine. Just whatever way that you're going through, you need a habitual way in which you're moving through the scriptures. I find the annual Bible reading plan helpful. I've done it other ways at different times, but that's been helpful. And one of the benefits of the plan is as I'm reading through the section, and I, I use the discipleship journal plan, I have done that for many years, so I'm reading, through the Gospels all year. I'm reading through the Epistles through the rest of the New Testament all year. I'm reading through the poetic sections a little bit all year long. I'm reading through the Old Testament, the the bulk of the Old Testament all year long. And as I'm in each section, some of you are like four different places every day, I'd get bewildered. Ah, I love I love it because sometimes it's just interesting to see how pieces connect as I'm reading through them that way. But that might not work for you and that's fine. But what's, what is your plan? And how can you take what you're reading and connect it to how you're praying? So I'm I'm like on the hunt for, for for verses. Like this morning, I was reading in Matthew 13 through the parable of the soils, and I was just noting in in reading all the references to hearing and understanding. And I said, that's what I want to pray for us as a congregation this morning. That we have ears to hear. Not just to physically hear, but we understand so that we're applying and we're hearing the word. And that became what I was praying for all the other issues that I've been praying about. Those verses drove me in prayer. So I'm connecting my regular Bible reading to what I'm praying about. That could be a way you use your Bible reading. So let me take that and give you just a specific suggestion. Here's kind of how it works out in my own life. And then I'll, I'll close. So for a lot of years, I've used a, a notebook. It used to be a little black three-ring binder. And I had a piece of paper in it with a column, two columns, what I'm praying about and what God did to answer. When I was 15, 14, 15 years old, when I came to faith in Christ, that's how I started And I built up hundreds of pages. It's always fun to pull that out and see how God answered prayers. Things that I've been praying about for years and then wow, God answers years later. It was encouraging. And that's developed over the years. I currently use an electronic notebook. Everything's going electronic, right? You say, ah, no, I'm old school paper. Great, pull out the paper but this is just how I do it. And I might change it in a while, but I arrange sections in my notebook and I arrange those sections around this prayer in Matthew 6. I have a section, Our Father. It's just a little tab. And within that tab, there are pages. And there's a page that contains verses from the scripture reading that I've been doing, sometimes in the psalm, and I'm just noting some of the attributes of God, things about God that I learn. I have a a page on Christ's mediatorial work that makes God, our father, because of what Christ has done in that work. How did I get those verses? One year in my daily Bible reading plan, I, I just started noting every time I saw the mediatorial work of Christ standing between God and us, I jotted the verse down and a section in my, my notebook and I began to pray. So sometimes I go back and I reflect on those verses again to remind myself, he's our father because of what Jesus has done. I have a list of verses in the Bible from that and from other, other places in Scripture that I've been memorizing or meditating on. Sometimes I have a section, just a, this is the verse I'm going to use today. I'm going to pray through this verse in all of the categories of prayer. I have another tab called Hallowed Be Your Name. And within this tab, I have multiple pages. And I, I record some of what I learn about the nature of God and I pray how does how does this element of God's nature could I pray for us to revere this element of his nature and I could pray that through requests I have on a daily basis and even a weekly basis and that's how I use that hallowed be your name section I have daily requests I'm praying for issues in my own life I'm praying for my wife each one of my children I'm praying for our parenting I pray daily for every one of our staff members, all of our elders, our interns, and I have a page for each one of their names. I'm in a small group, I have their names listed there, and and I don't pray, I don't write something down necessarily every day, sometimes I just walk through the week and in certain ones I'm jotting things down, or I'm focusing on my family today and I'm really intensely there, or I'm the elders and I'm intentionally praying specifically for each one of them. But I use a passage of scripture to drive me that way. Then I have the list of the days, Monday, and this is all under hallowed be your name, Monday through Sunday. On Mondays, I'm praying for other churches that I've listed, other pastors who are significant in my life. Tuesdays, I'm praying for leaders in our church and that God would bring up new leaders. I have specific requests on that page. On Wednesdays, I'm praying for government officials. Say, so you don't pray for these people other days either? Well, I might, I just know me. If I don't remind myself to pray for some of these things, I never will. So government leaders, I list from the president, every president, not just the ones that I think I like better than others, the president down to the mayor of our city and city council people. And I find that stuff online. And because it's electronic, I can put a link there and I can find information about their spouse usually and their children, and I can pray for them. On Thursday, I'm praying for specific missionaries with whom we're working directly. On Friday, I'm praying for my own life of evangelism and specific people that I'm talking with. On Saturdays, I'm praying for extended family members. On Sunday, I'm praying for our church gathering who will be involved under all under hallowed be your name. You see how it expands the amount of time you might pray? There's another tab marked your kingdom come and I have a page dedicated to requests for non-Christians in my immediate family. Extended family, people attending our church who are not Christians that I've met, neighbors who are around us, church planters, people in positions of significant authority and unreached nations. Do you start praying for Russia this week? Or do you just make nasty political statements about it? Do you pray for terrorists? Don't you pray for the kingdom to come? That's what we're praying. I have another page under your kingdom come dedicated to verses from my Bible reading that speak to Christ's return that would stoke my yearning for his coming and prayers about that. I have a tab marked your will be done and I have pages for personal requests and unique situations in our church, a miscellaneous place page where I just put a variety of things that come to mind that I'm praying for the will of God to be accomplished I have a tab marked give us this day and in it I have a page concerning verses of promise that God promises to meet our needs and I meditate on those verses at time again those come from my Bible reading I have a page focused on gratitude that I I open up regularly and I try to add something that I haven't ever added before that I'm grateful for it says look what God has done And am I dependent on him for this or do I take it for granted? I have another page where I record needs within our immediate family or other people as they random come to me. I have a tab for forgive us our sins. This is a challenging one. It has a page of scriptures that remind me of God's kindness to forgive sins. I'm reminding myself regularly God is a forgiving God. I have a page where I record specific ways in which I'm confessing my sin to God. No, you may not read it. I also have a page called Those I Must Forgive. Who should I forgive? And what am I praying in regard to that and how? I have another tab, Deliver Us From Evil, has a list of verses in it on one page reminding me of God's promise to preserve those who are in him. And there's a page where I record specific trials that maybe shake my soul and even particular temptations and how I've responded or should respond. And I have a final page called Yours is the Kingdom because I want to end there. I want to end by saying, this is yours. It is not mine. This is for you, not me. I'm a slave in the kingdom, and I'm happy to be a slave. I'm a slave who's also your child, and I want your glory to be displayed. And some days I, I walk through that very quickly, and other days I linger in prayer. Sometimes some of those tabs get more attention than others, but none of that really matters And you say, that sounds too involved for me. Right, it's just how I develop it over time and it changes. But I'm I'm just wondering, what's your plan? What's your plan? What are you doing to pray this way? Or at least to pray specifically. What could you do starting today to prepare yourself to pray intentionally all week long in the way that Jesus has taught us to pray? What would you do? I don't know what that would look like. Talk about it with each other. Talk about it in a growth group. Talk about it over lunch with others. And, and there are probably people out there is like, wow, you're, you're way complicated. I've got a better system and an easier system. I'd love to hear it. I really would. I'm always wanting to grow too. I just want you to be praying. I want us to be praying regularly, intentionally focused. So we hope and trust that even this little time that we've spent over the last few weeks talking about this yields much fruit in our congregation as we seek to live in a dependent way on God and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish up today, we do want all of our conversation in this discussion to help us to pray in a more focused way, seeking what you've called us to to seek and the way you've called us to seek you. We pray that this will encourage us and spark in us desires to grow in our fellowship with you. Lord, use this among us. Cause your name to be hallowed. We long for that. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom will come in its fullness and you will accomplish your will and that we would be gratefully dependent on you for everything in our life, every day. We would seek you. We pray that we would not harbor any grudge and we would seek forgiveness from you and we would extend it to others. And Lord, don't let us fall in the seasons of trial in which our soul will give way. Help us to fight sin. In your grace, yes, but to battle it with every ounce of our being because the whole kingdom is yours. All the glory belongs to you. Display your power.